0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. This week we're finishing out the chapter on food of the conquest of bread. This was a very long chapter, and we split it into still almost an hour of stuff. Last week was mostly about why food is necessary to feed people, and the failing of not providing food to people in a revolution, and why that ultimately undermines the revolution itself this week is going to get more into logistics of actually feeding people and how you can do that while maintaining an anarchical system so let's hear all about that as we start today's reading section four the people of the great towns will be driven by force of circumstances to take possession of all the provisions beginning with the barest necessities and gradually extending communism to other things, in order to satisfy the needs of all the citizens. The sooner it is done, the better. The sooner it is done, the less misery there will be, and the less strife. But upon what basis must society be organized in order that all may have their due share of food produce? This is the question that meets us at the outset. We answer that there are no two ways of it, There is only one way in which communism can be established equitably, only one way which satisfies our instincts of justice and is, at the same time, practical. Namely, the system already adopted by the agrarian communes of Europe. Take, for example, a peasant commune. No matter where, even in France, where the Jacobins have done their best to destroy all communal usage, if the commune possesses woods and copses, then, so long as there is plenty of wood for all, everyone can take as much as he wants, without other let or hindrance than the public opinion of his neighbours. As to the timber trees, which are always scarce, they have to be carefully apportioned. The same with the communal pasture land. While there is enough and to spare, no limit is put to what the cattle of each homestead may consume, nor to the number of beasts grazing upon the pastures. Grazing grounds are not divided, nor is fodder doled out, unless there is scarcity. All the Swiss communes and scores of thousands in France and Germany, wherever there is communal pasture land, practice this system. And in the countries of Eastern Europe, where there are great forests and no scarcity of land, you will find the peasants felling the trees as they need them, and cultivating as much of the soil as they require, without any thought of limiting each man's share of timber or of land. But the timber will be allowanced, and the land parceled out, to each household according to its needs, as soon as either becomes scarce, as is already the case in Russia. In a word, the system is this. No stint or limit to what the community possesses in abundance, but equal sharing and dividing of those commodities which are scarce or apt to run short. Of the 350 millions who inhabit Europe, 200 millions still follow the system of natural communism. It is a fact worth remarking that the same system prevails in the great towns in the distribution of one commodity at least, which is found in abundance, the water supplied to each house. As long as there is no fear of the supply running short, no water company thinks of checking the consumption of water in each house. Take what you please. But during the great droughts, If there is any fear of the supply failing, the water companies know that all they have to do is to make known the fact by means of a short advertisement in the papers, and the citizens will reduce their consumption of water and not let it run to waste. But if water were actually scarce, what would be done? Recourse would be had to a system of rations. Such a measure is so natural, so inherent in common sense, that Paris twice asked to be put on rations during the two sieges which it underwent in 1871. Is it necessary to go into details to prepare tables, showing how the distribution of rations may work, to prove that it is just and equitable, infinitely more just and equitable, than the existing state of things? All these tables and details will not serve to convince those of the middle classes, nor, alas those of the workers tainted with middle-class prejudices, who regard the people as a mob of savages, ready to fall upon and devour each other as soon as the government ceases to direct affairs. But those only who have never seen the people resolve and act on their own initiative, could doubt for a moment that if the masses were masters of the situation, they would distribute rations to each and all in strictest accordance with justice and equity. If you were to give utterance, in any gathering of people, to the opinion that delicacies, game and such like, should be reserved for the fastidious palates of aristocratic idlers and black bread be given to the sick in the hospitals, you would be hissed. But say, at the same time, gathering, preach at the street corners and in the marketplaces that the most tempting delicacies ought to be kept for the sick and feeble, especially for the sick. Say that if there are only five brace of partridge in the entire city, and only one case of sherry, that they should go to sick people in convalescence. Say that after the sick come the children. For them the milk of the cows and goats should be reserved, if there is not enough for all. To the children and the aged, the last piece of meat, and to the strong man, dry bread, if the community be reduced to that extremity. Say, in a word, that if this or that article of consumption runs short, and has to be doled out, to those who have most need, most should be given. Say that, and see if you do not meet with universal agreement. The man who is full fed does not understand this, but the people do understand, and have always understood it. And even the child of luxury, if he is thrown on the street and comes into contact with the masses, even he will learn to understand. The theorists for whom the soldier's uniform and the barrack mess table are civilization's last word, would like, no doubt, to start a regime of national kitchens and Spartan broth. They would point out the advantages thereby gained, the economy and fuel and food, if such huge kitchens were established where everyone could come for their rations of soup and bread and vegetables. We do not question these advantages. We are well aware that important economies have already been achieved in this direction, as for instance, when the hand mill or quern or the baker's oven attached to each house were abandoned. We can see perfectly well that it would be more economical to cook broth for a hundred families at once instead of lighting a hundred separate fires. We know, besides, that there are a thousand ways of preparing potatoes, but that cooked in one huge pot for a hundred families, they would be just as good. We know, in fact, that variety in cooking being a matter of the seasoning introduced by each cook or housewife, the cooking together of a hundred weight of potatoes would not prevent each cook or housewife from dressing and serving them in any way she pleased. And we know that stock made from meat can be converted into a hundred different soups to suit a hundred different tastes. But though we are quite aware of all these facts, We still maintain that no one has a right to force a housewife to take her potatoes from the communal kitchen, ready cooked, if she prefers to cook them herself in her own pot on her own fire. And, above all, we should wish each one to be free to take his meals with his family, or with his friends, or even in a restaurant, if it seemed good to him. Naturally, large public kitchens will spring up to take the place of restaurants, where people are poisoned nowadays, Already, the Parisian housewife gets the stock for her soup from the butcher, and transforms it into whatever soup she likes. And London housekeepers know that they can have a joint roasted, or an apple or rhubarb tart baked at the baker's for a trifling sum, thus economizing time and fuel. And when the communal kitchen, the common bakehouse of the future, is established and people can get their food cooked without the risk of being cheated or poisoned, the custom will no doubt become general of going to the communal kitchen for the fundamental parts of the meal, leaving the last touches to be added as individual tastes shall suggest. But to make a hard and fast rule of this, to make a duty of taking home our food ready-cooked, that would be as repugnant to our modern minds as the ideas of the convent or the barrack, morbid ideas born in brains warped by tyranny or superstition who will have a right to the food of the commune, will assuredly be the first question which we shall have to ask ourselves. Every township will answer for itself, and we are convinced that the answers will all be dictated by the sentiment of justice. Until labour is reorganised, as long as the disturbed period lasts, and while it is impossible to distinguish between inveterate idlers and genuine workers thrown out of work, the available food ought to be shared by all without exception. Those who have been enemies to the new order will hasten of their own accord to rid the commune of their presence. But it seems to us that the masses of the people, which have always been magnanimous and have nothing of vindictiveness in their disposition, will be ready to share their bread with all who remain with them, conquered and conquerors alike. It will be no loss to the revolution to be inspired by such an idea, and, when work is set a going again, The antagonists of yesterday will stand side by side in the same workshops. A society where work is free will have nothing to fear from idlers. But provisions will run short in a month, our critics at once exclaim. So much the better, say we. It will prove that for the first time on record, the people have had enough to eat. As to the question of obtaining fresh supplies, we shall discuss the means in our next chapter. Section 5 By what means could a city in a state of revolution be supplied with food? We shall answer this question, but it is obvious that the means resorted to will depend on the character of the revolution in the provinces, and in the neighbouring countries. If the entire nation, or better still, if all Europe, should accomplish the social revolution simultaneously, and start with thoroughgoing communism, our procedure would be simplified. But if only a few communities in Europe make the attempt, other means will have to be chosen. The circumstances will dictate the measures. We are thus led, before we proceed further, to glance at the state of Europe and, without pretending to prophecy, we may try to foresee what course the revolution will take, or at least what will be its essential features. Certainly it would be very desirable that all Europe should rise at once, that expropriation should be general and that communistic principles should inspire all and sundry. Such a universal rising would do much to simplify the task of our century. But all the signs lead us to believe that it will not take place, that the revolution will embrace Europe we do not doubt. If one of the four great continental capitals, Paris, Vienna, Brussels or Berlin, rises in revolution and overturns its government, it is almost certain that the three others will follow its example within a few weeks' time. It is, moreover, highly probable that the peninsulas and even London and St. Petersburg would not be long in following suit. But whether the revolution would everywhere exhibit the same characteristics is highly doubtful. It is more than probable that expropriation will be everywhere carried into effect on a larger scale, and that this policy carried out by any one of the great nations of Europe will influence all the rest. Yet, the beginnings of the revolution will exhibit great local differences. And its course will vary in different countries. In 1789-93, the French peasantry took four years to finally rid themselves of the redemption of feudal rights, and the bourgeois to overthrow royalty. Let us keep that in mind, and therefore be prepared to see the revolution develop itself somewhat gradually. Let us not be disheartened if here and there its steps should move less rapidly. Whether it would take an avowedly socialist character in all European nations, at any rate at the beginning, is doubtful. Germany, be it remembered, is still realising its dream of a united empire. Its advanced parties see visions of a Jacobin Republic, like that of 1848, and of the organisation of labour according to Louis Blanc, while the French people, on the other hand, want above all things a free commune, whether it be a communist commune. Or not. There is every reason to believe that, when the coming revolution takes place, Germany will go further than France went in 1793. The 18th century revolution in France was an advance on the English revolution of the 17th, abolishing as it did at one stroke the power of the throne and the landed aristocracy, whose influence still survives in England. But if Germany goes further and does greater things than France did in 1793, there can be no doubt that the ideas which will foster the birth of her revolution will be those of 1848, while the ideas which will inspire the revolution in Russia will probably be a combination of those of 1789 with those of 1848. Without, however, attaching to these forecasts a greater importance than they merit, we may safely conclude this much though revolution will take a different character in each of the different European nations. The point attained in the socialization of wealth will not be everywhere the same. Will it therefore be necessary, as is sometimes suggested, that the nations in the vanguard of the movement should adapt their pace to those who lag behind? Must we wait till the communist revolution is ripe in all civilized countries? Clearly not. Even if it were a thing to be desired, it is not possible. History does not wait for the laggards. Besides, we do not believe that in any one country the revolution will be accomplished at a stroke, in the twinkling of an eye, as some socialists dream. Footnote 1. It is highly probable that if one of the five or six large towns of France, Paris, Lyon, Marseille, Lille, Saint-Étienne, Bordeaux, were to proclaim the commune, the others would follow its example, and that many smaller towns would do the same. Perhaps also various mining districts and industrial centres would hasten to rid themselves of owners and masters, and form themselves into free groups. But many country places have not advanced to that point. Side by side with the revolutionized communes, such places would remain in an expectant attitude, and would go on living on the individualist system. Undisturbed by visits of the bailiff or the tax collector, the peasants would not be hostile to the revolutionaries, and thus, while profiting by the new state of affairs, they would defer the settlement of accounts with the local exploiters. But, with that practical enthusiasm which always characterizes agrarian uprisings, witness the passionate toil of 1792, they would throw themselves into the task of cultivating the land, which, freed from taxes and mortgages, would become so much dearer to them. As to other countries, revolution would break out everywhere, but revolution under diverse aspects. In one country state socialism, in another, federation, everywhere more or less socialism, not conforming to any particular rule. Section 6 Let us now return to our city in revolt and consider how its citizens can provide foodstuffs for themselves. How are the necessary provisions to be obtained if the nation as a whole has not accepted communism? This is the question to be solved. Take, for example, one of the large French towns. Take the capital itself, for that matter. Paris consumes every year thousands of tons of grain, 400,000 head of oxen, 300,000 calves, 400,000 swine, and more than 2 millions of sheep besides great quantities of game. This huge city devours, besides, more than 20 million pounds of butter, 200 million eggs, and other produce in like proportion. It imports flour and grain from the United States and from Russia, Hungary, Italy, Egypt, and the Indies. Livestock from Germany, Italy, Spain, even Romania and Russia. And as far as groceries, there is not a country in the world that it does not lay under contribution. Now let us see how Paris, or any other great town, could be revictualled by home-grown produce, supplies of which could be readily and willingly sent in from the provinces. To those who put their trust in authority, the question will appear quite simple. They would begin by establishing a strongly centralized government, furnished with all the machinery of coercion, the police, the army, the guillotine. This government would draw up a statement of all the produce contained in France, It would divide the country into districts of supply, and then command that a prescribed quantity of some particular foodstuff be sent to such a place on such a day, and delivered at such a station, to be there received on a given day by a specified official, and stored in particular warehouses. Now, we declare with the fullest conviction that not merely that such a solution is undesirable, but that it never could by any possibility be put into practice. It is wildly utopian. Pen in hand, one may dream such a dream in the study, but in contact with reality it comes to nothing. This was proved in 1793. For, like all such theories, it leaves out of account the spirit of independence that is in man. The attempt would lead to a universal uprising, to three or four Vendes, to the villages rising against the towns. All the country up in arms, defying the city for its arrogance in attempting to impose such a system upon the country. We have already had too much of Jacobin utopias. Let us see if some other form of organisation will meet the case. During the French Revolution, the provinces starved the large towns and killed the revolution, and yet it is a known fact that the production of grain in France during seventeen ninety two to seventeen ninety three had not diminished. Indeed, the evidence goes to show that it had increased, but after having taken possession of the manorial lands, after having reaped a harvest from them, the peasants would not part with their grain for paper money. They withheld their produce, waiting for a rise in the price or the introduction of gold. The most rigorous measures of the national convention were without avail, and her executions failed to break up the ring or force the farmers to sell their corn. For it is a matter of history that the commissaries of the convention did not scruple to guillotine those who withheld their grain from the market, and pitilessly executed those who speculated in foodstuffs. All the same, the corn was not forthcoming, and the townsfolk suffered from famine. But what was offered to the husbandman in exchange for his hard toil? Asignat, scraps of paper decreasing in value every day, promises of payment which could not be kept. A £40 note would not purchase a pair of boots, and the peasant, very naturally, was not anxious to barter a year's toil for a piece of paper, with which he could not even buy a shirt. As long as worthless paper money, whether called assignats or labour notes, is offered to the peasant producer, it will always be the same. The country will withhold its produce, and the towns will suffer want. Even if the recalcitrant peasants are guillotined as before, we must offer to the peasant in exchange for his toil not worthless paper money, but the manufactured articles of which he stands in immediate need. He lacks the proper implements to till the land, clothes to protect him from the inclemencies of the weather, lamps and oil to replace his miserable rushlight or tallow dip, spades, rakes, ploughs, all these things. Under present conditions, the peasant is forced to do without, not because he does not feel the need of them, but because, in his life of struggle and privation, a thousand useful things are beyond his reach, because he has not money to buy them. Let the town apply itself, without loss of time, to manufacturing all that the peasant needs, instead of fashioning gigaws for the wives of rich citizens, let the sewing machines of Paris be set to work on clothes for the country folk, workaday clothes, and clothes for Sunday too, instead of the costly evening dresses for the English and Russian landlords and the African gold magnates' wives. Let the factories and foundries turn out agricultural implements, spades, rakes, and such like, instead of waiting till the English send them to France in exchange for French wines. Let the town send no more inspectors to the villages wearing red, blue, or rainbow coloured scarves, to convey to the peasant orders to take his produce to this place or that, but let them send friendly embassies to the country folk, and bid them in brotherly fashion. Quote, Bring us your produce, and take from our stores and shops all the manufactured articles you please. End quote. Then provisions would pour in on every side. The peasant would only withhold what he needed for his own use, and would send the rest into the cities, Feeling, for the first time in the course of history, that these toiling townsfolk were his comrades, his brethren, and not his exploiters. We shall be told, perhaps, that this would necessitate a complete transformation of industry. Well, yes, that is true of certain departments. But there are other branches which could be rapidly modified in such a way as to furnish the peasant with clothes, watches, furniture and the simple implements for which the towns make him pay such exorbitant prices at the present time. Weavers, tailors, shoemakers, tinsmiths, cabinet makers, and many other trades and crafts could easily direct their energies to the manufacture of useful and necessary articles and abstain from producing mere luxuries. All that is needed is that the public mind should be thoroughly convinced of the necessity of this transformation, and should come to look upon it as an act of justice, and of progress, and that it should no longer allow itself to be cheated by that dream, so dear to the theorists, the dream of a revolution which confines itself to taking possession of the profits of industry, and leaves production and commerce just as they are now. This, then, is our view of the whole question. Cheat the peasant no longer with scraps of paper. Be the sums inscribed upon them ever so large, But offer him in exchange for his produce the very things with which he, the tiller of the soil, stands in need. Then the fruits of the land will be poured into the towns. If this is not done, there will be famine in our cities, and reaction and despair will follow in its train. Section 7. All the great towns, we have said, buy their grain, their flour, and their meat, not only from the provinces, but also from abroad. Foreign countries send Paris not only spices, fish, and various dainties, but also immense quantities of corn and meat. But when the revolution comes, these cities will have to depend on foreign countries as little as possible. If Russian wheat, Italian or Indian rice, and Spanish or Hungarian wines abound in the markets of Western Europe, it is not that the countries which export them have a superabundance, or that such produce grows there of itself. Like the dandelion in the meadows. In Russia, for instance, the peasant works 16 hours a day and half starves from three to six months every year in order to export the grain with which he pays the landlord and the state. Today, the police appears in the Russian village as soon as the harvest is gathered in and sells the peasant's last horse and last cow for arrears of taxes and rent due to the landlord unless the victim immolates himself of his own accord by selling the grain to the exporters. Usually, rather than part with his livestock at a disadvantage, he keeps only a nine-month supply of grain and sells the rest. Then, in order to sustain life until the next harvest, he mixes birch bark and terrors with his flour for three months, if it has been a good year, and for six months if it has been bad while in London, they are eating biscuits made of his wheat. But as soon as the revolution comes, the Russian peasant will keep bread enough for himself and his children. The Italian and Hungarian peasants will do the same. The Hindu, let us hope, will profit by these good examples. And the farmers of America will hardly be able to cover all the deficit in grain which Europe will experience so it will not do to count on their contributions of wheat and maize satisfying all the wants. Since all our middle class civilization is based on the exploitation of inferior races and countries with less advanced industrial systems, the revolution will confer a boon at the very outset by menacing that civilization and allowing the so-called inferior races to be free themselves. But this great benefit will manifest itself by a steady and marked diminution of the food supplies pouring into the great cities of Western Europe. It is difficult to predict the course of affairs in the provinces. On the one hand, the slave of the soil will take advantage of the revolution to straighten his bowed back. Instead of working 14 or 15 hours a day, as he does at present, he will be at liberty to work only half that time, which of course would have the effect of decreasing the production of the principal articles of consumption, grain and meat. But, on the other hand, there will be an increase of production as soon as the peasant realizes that he is no longer forced to support the idle rich by his toil. New tracts of land will be cleared, new and improved machines set a-going. Quote, never was the land so energetically cultivated as in 1792, when the peasant had taken back from the landlord the soil which he had coveted so long. End quote. Michelet tells us, speaking of the Great Revolution. Of course, before long, intensive culture would be within the reach of all. Improved machinery, chemical manures, and all such matters would soon be supplied by the Commune. But everything tends to indicate that at the outset there would be a falling off in agricultural products, in France and elsewhere. In any case, it would be wisest to count upon such a falling off of contributions from the provinces as well from abroad. How is this falling off to be made good? Why? By setting to work ourselves. No need to rack our brains for far-fetched panaceas when the remedy lies close at hand. The large towns, as well as the villages, must undertake to till the soil. We must return to what biology calls the integration of functions. After the division of labor, the taking up of it as a whole, this is the course followed to right nature. Besides, philosophy apart, the force of circumstances would bring about this result. Let Paris see that at the end of eight months, it will be running short of bread, and Paris will set to work to grow wheat. Land will not be wanting, for it is around the great towns, and around Paris especially, that the parks and pleasure grounds of the landed gentry are to be found. These thousands of acres only await the skilled labor of the husbandman to surround Paris with fields infinitely more fertile and productive than the steppes of southern Russia, where the soil is dried up by the sun. Nor will labor be lacking. To what should the two million citizens of Paris turn their attention? When they would be no longer catering for the luxurious fads and amusements of Russian princes, Romanian grandees, and wives of Berlin financiers. With all the mechanical inventions of the century, with all the intelligence and technical skill of the worker accustomed to deal with complicated machinery, with inventors, chemists, professors of botany, practical botanists like the market gardeners of Genevilliers, with all the plant that they could use for multiplying and improving machinery, and, finally, with the organizing spirit of the Parisian people, their pluck and energy. With all these at its command, the agriculture of the anarchist commune of Paris would be a very different thing from the rude husbandry of the Ardennes. Steam, electricity, the heat of the sun, and the breath of the wind will ere long be pressed into service the steam plough and the steam harrow will quickly do the rough work of preparation, and the soil, thus cleaned and enriched, will only need the intelligent care of man and of woman even more than man to be clothed with luxuriant vegetation, not once but three or four times in the year. Thus, learning the art of horticulture from experts and trying experiments in different methods on small patches of soil reserved for the purpose, vying with each other to obtain the best returns, finding in physical exercise, without exhaustion or overwork, the health and strength which so often flags in cities. Men, women, and children will gladly turn to the labor of the fields, when it is no longer a slavish drudgery, but has become a pleasure, a festival, a renewal of health and joy. Quote, There are no barren lands. The earth is worth what man is worth. End quote. That is the last word of modern agriculture. Ask of the earth, and she will give you bread, provided that you ask aright. A district, though it were as small as the two departments of the Seine and the Seine-et-Oise, and with so great a city as Paris to feed, would be practically sufficient to grow upon it all the food supplies, which otherwise might fail to reach it. The combination of agriculture and industry, the husbandman and the mechanic in the same individual, This is what anarchist communism will inevitably lead us to, if it starts fair, with expropriation. Let the revolution only get so far, and famine is not the enemy it will have to fear. No, the danger which will menace it lies in timidity, prejudice, and half-measures. The danger is where Danton saw it when he cried to France, De l'audace, de l'audace, et encore de Lodus. The bold thought first, and the bold deed will not fail to follow. And that concludes today's greeting. A quick note that at the end there, uh, de Lotus, that quote, is basically saying daring, daring, and more daring. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email the show leftistreading at gmail.com or find the Twitter at leftistreading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Podcast Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com find all sorts of other podcasts about books, video games, movies, anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.